Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, this is Phil Stevens, strength coach. I run Strength Guild in Kansas. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and I get to pick up my half a cow today. Ooh. So, I'm happy. Nice. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm getting half a cow in two weeks, so I have Ooh, to compete. With Phil, so. Yeah, I'm excited. I just got a new yeah. grill the other day too. So, uh, associate professor at Kerrigan Institute, creator of the Flex Diet certification. And this is Nicole Corcoran. I'm currently studying for my master's degree in exercise and nutrition science at the University of Tampa. Sweet. Okay. Well, Nicole, I hope you're not uh, a vegetarian after those intros. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are eating half a cow. Phil, maybe at a time. So. Yeah, there you go. Um, everybody, we have just a little bit of uh, news. We don't want to overdo it so we can get to our guest. We'll talk with uh, Nicole a little bit about her origin story. Uh, with sports nutrition, why she decided to go so far in school in a topic like that. Um, and then we're going to talk about intermittent fasting, among other things, after the break. So that should be interesting. Let's start with just two little news tidbits. These are not studies, um, but I think they could be interesting for our listeners just to keep an eye on what's coming down the pike. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This first one... FDA provides additional flexibility regarding nutrition and supplement facts labels. So if you haven't been keeping up on this, the FDA, because of different commissioners coming and going and the politics involved, it seems like, you know, they, in my mind, they seem to be waffling a little bit on how they're going to enforce things. Not always that they're willing to change rules outright, but just, you know, oh, we're going to give you more time for this or we're going to enforce that more lazily kind of thing. So this came out, this is about three weeks ago. It says the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is announcing additional flexibility for manufacturers who need to comply with the updated nutrition and supplement facts labels. Uh, those requirements were set for January 1st of 2021. So uh, we even talk about this in the classroom, like, you know, the new labels, were they worth billions of dollars, you know, um, basically to reprint with the calorie number so huge and uh, they included the added sugars subcategory under carbs and all that kind of stuff. It says, um, this upcoming compliance date applies to manufacturers with less than $10 million in annual food sales. It says the FDA will not focus on enforcement actions. So the, the compliance remains in place, but they're not going to enforce it. And this is what I mean about sometimes hearing this stuff and it seeming you know like it's wishy-washy maybe, but... Uh, they're not going to focus on inform enforcement actions during 2021 for smaller food manufacturers. And then this is curious. They specifically mention manufacturers of packages and containers of single ingredient sugars. So I don't know if this is like the Sugar Refiners Association back at the you know, um, negotiating table with them or what. Because, of course, there are some groups that don't want added sugars to you know, put on the label. I mean, to a physiologist... Nicole, you know this. I mean, uh, sugar is a sugar, but then, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, what else is in that food as a package? You know, if you drink orange juice, you have other things coming along with it at least. Um, instead of, you know, like, uh, I don't know, red number five or something like that. 
It says the FDA has heard from some manufacturers that more time may be needed, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, if listeners, if you're starting to see these new food labels crop up, um, you may not see the brand new ones on certain, as, as far as I can understand, certain sugary food products. Um, I imagine if it's, if it's entirely sugary, like the added sugars subcategory that was so controversial, that would be like the entirety of the label. I don't know. So, I don't know. Weird enforcement stuff coming from the FDA as far as those new food labels. And this is supplement labels, too. So the supplement facts panels, uh, they might not have to be updated as quickly. This other one, piece of news, this is also vaguely related to uh, COVID-19. What isn't these days, I guess. Uh, the World Health Organization endorses clinical trials for herbal medicines to treat COVID-19. Now, I think this is interesting because we hear so much about the vaccines, right? Um, Moderna and Pfizer and all these companies. Some of these companies are saying they don't want to make any money off of, off of the vaccines. Other companies, of course, are not being so generous. But there are places around the world where people just don't have the money, right, or the access to some fancy new mRNA vaccine for Moderna. So it says the World Health Organization has endorsed a protocol to put African herbal medicines through clinical trials as possible treatments for COVID-19. Now, you might say, well, Lowry, who cares? We live in the States, right? Um, not to say that certain parts of the United States aren't bad, right? Like Florida, Nicole, but just saying. Mm -hmm. um, but... It says the onset of COVID-19, like the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, has highlighted the need for strengthened health systems and accelerated research and development programs, including traditional medicines. It says Prosper Tumuslime, T-U-M-U-S-L-I-M-E. Uh, he's the WHO regional uh, office director, I think, there in uh, his portion of Africa. Anyway, it says, as part of the protocol... Uh, any medicines from trials that could be considered effective and safe uh, will essentially be looked at by WHO, and then the World Health Organization would recommend them to be fast-tracked for large-scale manufacturing. Now, you might think, well, where is this coming from? Again, you're talking about some economies there, right, in different countries in Africa that are they're not going to have access to all the latest and greatest probably. But it says the news comes after earlier claims from Madagascar that an herbal concoction known as COVID Organics, this almost sounds like a U.S. supplement company, um, COVID Organics is able to prevent the spread of COVID-19. So they're not sharing the results of the clinical trials, apparently, but the president of Madagascar, Andre Rohelina, says that free distribution of the drink was responsible for the low infection rates in uh, one of Madagascar's capital suburbs. So... This was a, a, a little piece by Annie Lennon uh, in Labroots, uh, newscatcher thing here. So I don't know. We may start seeing that trickle over if the World Health Organization starts saying, hey, herbal medicines may be helpful or herbal supplements may be helpful and we're going to fast track them. I'm going to be curious to see if we start seeing supplement companies here daring, <laughs> you know, to go into those waters. So we'll have to see. I'm sure they probably will. Yeah. Well, if, if, <laughs> if, if WHO says, you know, all right, we're going to take this more seriously. All right. You know, you know how these small supplement companies work. They can find people to do little mini trials for them and find something good. That they can exaggerate yeah. on the label. Well, I suppose if it's an herbal, do they even, as long as they're careful with what claims they're making, I mean... There's no patent or anything else, so if it's an herbal, it should be, you know, potentially over-the-counter, too, in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, I think they're doing it because it's cheap and accessible to people in Africa, right? But I think also because of the Madagascar claims, it's getting worldwide attention, you know? And I think everybody has that little hope. Like, maybe there's some botanical, yeah, totally. you know, that would actually help in some way. Yeah, I wonder. You're right, though. If, if they stick here in the States to structure function claims, you know, those may help support a healthy right. immune system. And they, I don't know. I, I don't know if they would dare start saying may help support immune system to fight COVID, but somebody would, would try. 
in fact, I didn't bring it up, but the uh, the origin company of DMAA is still fighting to get those uh, extracts. Those um, what is that stuff called, Mike? Um, geranium extracts. Yeah, correct? yeah, right. Geranium um, dimethyl. I don't even remember. I've kind of written it off my page, right? Because it was sort of banned. Um, that I think it was the main ingredient. Wasn't it in Jack 3D or? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> that was the main ingredient that had it, and other companies soon kind of followed suit. Mm-hmm. And I think it's high-tech pharmaceuticals is the ones that are still suing the FDA, and they were supposed to have a verdict a couple months ago, I think, but I've kind of lost track of what's happened right. to legally. Well, I if I read it right, I just read that a judge ruled against them. Like, no, you know, this is – either it, it wasn't in substantial amounts, you know, in geraniums to be considered – but it sounds like it wasn't going well for the company that wanted to fight to somehow keep it keep it going. So the herbal stuff, yeah, it's fraught with gray areas, I guess. Yeah, especially in that even gray area. Now you're talking about something that we could argue may or may not show up in nature. That's probably even debatable in that That's case. what I mean, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You're organically synthesizing it. And, and again, I'm not an attorney in this area. This is definitely not my specialty, but... That's an even bigger gray area because, I mean, creatine is synthetically made now. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, a lot of stuff that's, you know, based on something that's naturally occurring, you're not taking that thing in the naturally occurring thing. We're not boiling down a bunch of steaks to get creatine. We're using organic chemistry to create it in the lab, even though the end product is literally identical. Right. Yeah. Um, but that even gets messy because now are you... Do you have to kind of organically source it? So far, the FDA has said you can, you know, take other processes to make it. But in this case, it kind of looks like mm, not not so much. So, and again, I don't know what the exact ruling on this case was. Yeah, I'll have to dig it up. I just read this I, earlier in the week that there was a ruling, as I understand it, against the manufacturer that maybe it didn't meet the criteria that the company wanted. But like we said, that's a gray area. I don't know. Maybe somebody more familiar with that will call in and be like, you guys, <laughs> you're talking yeah. about our product. Well, you know, then enlighten us, right? Because, I, yeah, I like I said, at least me personally, I mean, I am the world authority on my own opinion. <laughs> and, right. and my opinion is mm-hmm. I ha- I've written that off my interest list a little bit personally. I only tried that stuff once, actually. And I wasn't a huge fan of how it made me feel. But maybe that's just me. I'm sensitive to stimulants and stuff. Phil, you tried that geranium stuff. Both of you guys did, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I think I did. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to go on too much of a tangent with that. So, yeah, the, anyways, who knows? We'll see similar, uh, you know, herbal constituents, something that's natural source, start entering the COVID-type markets. I mean, look what they did with CBD oil and stuff. Like, if there's a new industry that crops up quickly, man, people are falling over themselves to get become oh, yeah. a part of that. Yeah, and that's... That's a whole nother show in it itself. It is. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, Nicole, let's get to you. Um, let's start with your origin story, as we are wont to do. How did you How did you get started with sports and an interest in nutrition and just all of the above? Yeah, so I, I've played soccer ever since I was like eight years old, and I always was working out for that and then on my own was really interested in nutrition and supplements and then but I actually started out in college as an engineering major and then really struggled with calculus but I was also playing soccer and my GPA was so bad after my first semester my coach was like you won't be able to play if you don't bring your grades up Um, and then at the start of my sophomore year I actually withdrew and went home to be with my dad because he was receiving a heart transplant at that time. Mm. And then after his recovery, I was like, all right, I need to get back to school because I definitely wanted to use the rest of my athletic ability or eligibility for um, soccer. And then it was kind of like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to study? And then I thought, you know, I've played soccer all this time. I enjoy working out. I enjoy reading up on nutrition um why don't i just go and study in school so then that's when i transferred to mount um for exercise science and 
also play on the soccer team there. And instantly, I just really fell in love with it. I was finally, like, succeeding in school. So I was like, oh, my gosh, just relieved that it wasn't me. I just wasn't mm-hmm. studying something I was passionate in. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it just kind of instantly clicked. I really loved learning, like, what I was learning in the classroom and then wanted to start applying that to my own training for soccer. Um, this really helped me because for women's soccer, at least in my experience, there was never a set, like, lifting like program for us it was a lot of um endurance training agility and we were given workouts from our coaches who didn't have a background in exercise science which that's fine like they kind of just google what to do for and find what they can on the internet so um yeah we didn't spend a lot of time in the gym and when we did it was just group workouts mostly endurance based and that was fine but kind of learning what I was learning in class I wanted to apply that to get stronger and kind of improve my performance so um that kind of that's when I got into lifting um after my junior year season and kind of that summer going into senior year I really wanted to have a really great senior year um and so I stayed um, the summer at school and was just really got into lifting, just doing crazy volume and um, really saw like being a beginner, I instantly saw those gains really quickly. And that kind of solidified my interest in lifting and continuing to lift. Um, and then I definitely saw an improvement Um, my senior year performance wise and I'm just like oh my gosh I wish I had done this my whole four years but from that I just really enjoyed learning more and more about strength training and the nutrition that goes along with it so that's kind of what led me to the University of Tampa I loved what I learned in undergrad and I just wanted to build upon that so right now my journey so my perception when I think about Tampa and some of the sports nutrition in Florida is that it's there's a lot of people down there that are resistance training focused, you know, physique, bodybuilding, muscle building. Was that your experience or were you working with faculty or, and other students that were more into team sports and, uh, you know, um, endurance stuff or, or what was, what's the flavor down there? Yeah, I actually really enjoyed my program because it was a real mix of different interests within the faculty. Like one faculty, he was really into, he did cardiac rehab. So a lot of it was exercising with special populations. And then another professor had a endocrinology background and he wanted to do more with um, pre-diabetes and hit training for pre-diabetes hmm. but then I did have a professor who was really into strength and training and I had a, quite a few um, strength training classes with him he was really into periodization and that's what a lot of his work was in so I definitely was exposed to a lot and then also we had a um, nutrition professor who it's sports nutrition and like supplements and ergogenic aids. So yeah, it's kind of a lot, but it was only a year program. So I, I kind of don't like how quickly it went by. I kind of huh. am want more. Right. Well, that's interesting. It was only a year. Did, how does that work? I mean, did you, did they accept some courses that you had coming in or, um, it's just built that way. It's just built that way. It was, um, you pretty much go all year round and um, it's pretty intense, like the course load and um, it's a hybrid uh, program as well. So we only, we actually only met one day a week and then um, did the rest online. So it left, it was left a lot of time for if you wanted to do internships and stuff as well. Okay. Yeah, it's good to get your your hands dirty, as it as it were. Um, mm-hmm. did, did you get involved in any research down there, or 
I mean, I, I guess with COVID and everything, it's kind of hard to do a lot of these things, right? Yeah, I was really disappointed because I was going to get into um, a, I think where they were doing something with carbohydrate rinsing, like mouth rinsing with a car- carbohydrate, um, basically like mouthwash. Yep. And I was going to get involved in that. And then COVID happened. I went on spring break expecting to return and then we just never returned. So I really only got my fall semester and a little bit of my spring semester down there. And I came home ever since then. So it was definitely weird having it online and I'm a little disappointed. I didn't get to do more in the lab. Right. Especially, obviously you have a little bit of background presenting research and writing it up and stuff like that. Not all masters people have that, you know, so Mm-hmm. Because you're you understand it, yeah, I can see that'd be a bummer not to get to use a little bit of that. Uh, yeah. So, nutrition interest specifically for you, uh, it sounded like when you started strength training, the, the early gains were a, a, a big motivator. In fact, we've talked about that on the show before, right? I think a lot of people they get into nutrition for fat loss purposes, and in a lot of ways, that backfires, right? Because it takes a long time to lose enough fat. Like, you have to really be successful for quite a long time before you start to – other people are like, wow, you lost so much fat, you know. But with strength gains, they come fast enough to motivate you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of stuff. It, so is that part of the thing with the nutrition, that you were seeking to, like, nutrition support for the strength gains that you were making? Yeah, I – learn now that I was severely under eating as an athlete and I knowing what I know now wish I would have been because I suffered from female athlete triad Mm -hmm. and I'm just imagining if I had the supplement and nutrition knowledge I have now and would have known that while I was an athlete like how much better my performance could have been right yeah i imagine you'd want to help other people too i mean what's your future plans are they kind of up in the air um i mean obviously with the pandemic and everything things are a little weird but what's what's the eye on the future yeah um yeah i've had a i'm currently searching for an internship i've had a few fall through due to the coronavirus but yeah it's i'm just job hunting and I may attempt to finish my master's with that internship and then maybe apply to some doctoral programs just to continue learning on. Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Professor Corcoran. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's what I was – when I I say, like, what's immediate plans – or not so much immediate, but career-wise, you know, you think you'd want to work with other soccer athletes and sort of – preach the benefits of strength and nutrition to them or what, <laughs> or do you want to work with a patient population, you know, like yeah, long-term? I see, I have so much interest in all the areas, just being exposed to it in my master's program that I'd like to try them all out just to see what I fit best in. Um, but yeah, when I originally applied to the program, um, I was writing how I would love in my like acceptance not acceptance, but like entry essay, how I would love to help athletes like me who, especially female athletes, I feel like not a lot of um, emphasis is placed on lifting and, you know, maybe helping athletes um, develop that way. It doesn't have to all be running and endurance. Like you can get in the gym and lift and Definitely with the nutrition side as well. I had no idea what I was doing, and I was actually harming myself trying to do um, diets such as, like, keto while I was doing intense training for soccer, and that messed me up. So if I could help someone prevent that and have a more successful season, that would be awesome as well. Yeah. Well, Phil, of course, you, um, part of your whole – gym services is to try to bring people in and introduce them to strength and conditioning, right? It blows mm-hmm. my mind that they go to university and they've got occasionally, you know, they've got coaches Googling or looking at magazines for their training programs. <laughs> oh my God. So is that what, is that what you do, Phil? 
<laughs> no, no, but I mean, I, I just, I have one client that was, he was picked up on a scholarship to be a thrower, throw shot put. And he got there, and because he was a fairly big guy and lifted, they they made him the strength coach for the whole throwing team. Oh, boy. As a freshman. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you're you're big, so you're the strength coach. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it rings true what oh, wow. you're saying. So, <laughs> and it's worse than that, even at times. So Right, yeah. Well, yeah. at least you're there to at least give the individual clients a head start. So when they go into that program, they, they can recognize, sort of like Nikki eventually did, like, I'm not sure this is a professional S&C program. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of that. I mean, but I mean, at the same time, you can't blame a lot of it. Look at the, aside from the top 1% of strength conditioning coaches at the collegiate level, I mean, they're paid peanuts and asked to work yeah. exorbitant hours. Right. You know? Yeah. So. No, I get it. I'm used to the nutrition stuff, you know, uh, Nicole, like you saying, geez, I just started picking up on this nutrition stuff myself. I mean, that's a shame, right, that a university, most universities, and obviously I'm biased, but they should have a nutritionist on board, right? Because you work your butt off on the field or in the gym, and then, you know, you ignore the fuel and the building blocks that make it all happen. Uh, it, you know, only 10% of your day is spent actually training with the team, and that's if you spend about two and a half hours doing that. The other 90% is just on you, and, you know, good luck to you. And mm -hmm. so it's amazing to me that collegiate athletes, it's just basically, I think, um, recruiting and genetic superiority that you get really gifted athletes at that level anyway, right? Because you just don't see strength staff and, and sports nutritionists on board at all schools, especially smaller schools, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I was seeking specifically a master's program that combined the two, and it was hard to find one. Tampa was one of the only ones in the nation that I found, So, because I just think they go together. Like, as an athlete, you can't mm -hmm. have one without the other, really. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Every time I've taken a, a post at a university, one of the first people I reach out to is – if they have a strength coach, um, I start talking to that person because they, they seem to have an interest usually in on the nutrition side of things. They understand, like you're saying, that these are two sides of the same coin. You know, if you want to get gains for your team, then you got to look at this sort of holistically, you know. Mm -hmm. That's actually what I was going to ask you about why the decision for Florida, but it's because they combined the some of the strength conditioning stuff with the, with the nutrition, right? Yep. Okay, everybody, let's go to break. We're about the halfway point. When we come back, we're just going to uh, pick Nicole's brain a little bit about intermittent fasting and similar diets and, you know, do they affect performance, all that sort of thing. So we'll be back. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast Airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, in about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture, similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project.
Mayan Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. It's Mike and Phil and Lonnie, and we have Nicole Corcoran with us, uh, grad student, sports nutrition sort of specialty here. And we're going to talk a little bit about intermittent fasting. Uh, and before we get right into the some of the science, Nicole, uh, Phil, you were just mentioning something about Stan Efferding was just mentioning some of this stuff, right? Good, bad, or ugly? Uh, what, what was going yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, it was basically just this week, and... So it's kind of neat that this came on, but he he cites two studies that uh, from the JAMA network. It's another peer-reviewed deal, but just basically what we were talking about before we came back on the air here. It's just that it's another tool, and it's not magic. You know, there's several studies that just came out that fasting for 16 hours a day may not make a significant difference in your, your weight loss or health markers if both groups eat the same amount of calories. Okay, um, and things like that, and then also some muscle wasting stuff. Uh, that some of that can be curved by if you're intermittent fasting and weight training. But for the average person, they were seeing like, oh, muscle was going away with longer fasts and th- and things like that. So he's just like, yeah, it's it's something that you might use, but a lot of people it's not great for. So mm-hmm. it's just not the magic pill that it's being pushed as. Yeah, um, it is popular. Yeah, and I, I think yeah. there's a genetic component. Over the years, I've read papers about how some people – they just go on hypocaloric diets, hypoenergetic diets, more successfully than others. You know, they mm-hmm. don't lose a lot of muscle. Other people lose more muscle. And I, I imagine there's like genetic and hormonal control and all this stuff, just different between people, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, yeah. It brings me back to that, like like we always talk about, it's cyclical. I mean, what was it, 15 years ago, that warrior diet came out? Like yeah, the goal is, the, the goal is to eat once a day, mm-hmm. you know, yep. and – yeah, that works, I suppose, as long as you don't eat 7,000 calories once a day. Right. <laughs> you know, <I laughs> no, mean. you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Homeostasis so. just ruins it, right? All these plans, yeah. all of this. Sagan used to talk about like 100 years ago, there was in late 1800s, there was this quaint term called paradoxers. And paradoxers were people who had elaborate explanations for something that may or may not pan out, right? Or something that science already knows in simpler terms. And he was, you know, he used to lament, like, in the modern world, we are all wash with paradoxers, you know. So sometimes we want to believe something is, oh, this is the bullet, the magic bullet. And, mm, you know, your body's even keel demand, your, like, natural thermostat for all things, just, it kind of doesn't always come out in the wash. Yeah, I was just going to say, one of them was the the treat randomized clinical trial. The main author is low. But what also I think is interesting, too, is that... When you set this up, you're you're only really going to be limited to one thing you're looking at. And in the real world, because one of the groups was the quote-unquote time-restricted eating was from noon until 8, but that was an ad libitum period. So they could kind of eat whatever they wanted. I'm sure there's some parameters within the study, but only for eight hours. And this was compared to eating three structured meals per day. And I've just noticed with working with some clients, like even if we go lower calories and we've got two or three meals per day they just seem to suffer pretty hard Mm. but if i extend sort of the fasting window and be like eh you can only eat between these time periods and you don't have to be as strict during those time periods they're like oh this is amazing and they're eating really around the same calories (laughs) (laughs) but their compliance for some people is going to be better other people are like oh the thought of fasting is just 
utterly horrible. It's the dumbest thing you've ever told me to do. I'm like, well, we're probably not going to use it then. <laughs> right, right, for sure. Um, Nicole, let me ask you, like, have you – I know you're familiar with, uh, with a couple of studies on this. Have you seen um, – because you mentioned its popularity. Is this more of a gen pop thing, or do you see athletes trying it? Because, you know, I would wonder, how is this going to affect your performance or whatever, but um, – you think it's more of a gen pop thing, or you think athletes might be making the mistake and jumping into this, or what? What's your perspective? Yeah, I think um, I would say the population it would work best for would be general population, just trying to lose weight, and you know, it kind of has. I kind of like it because it has easier rules. Um, you just pick a time that you're going to eat between. You don't have to take out macronutrients like with keto and so i think it kind of appeals to me for that reason mm-hmm. um and you know for athletic populations i could see it working in a maybe a cutting mesocycle or um but yeah you got to be careful with it just because i would just mainly because protein you know with muscle protein synthesis um, if you're trying to gain muscle mass or um, preserve lean mass, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mess with it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so. when you talk about like uh, cutting mesocycles and whatnot, the last time I dieted real hard, every Friday I did sort of modified version of that. In fact, um, a colleague of mine, Ron, who Nicole, you know, he and I would on Fridays. We would just basically sip low-dose protein. It was sort of what Chris Shugart was putting out there, that pulse fasting idea. Because I was paranoid, fair or not, right, real or not, I was paranoid about losing muscle mass. But I felt like I was getting middle-aged and I had to do something if I wanted to get real lean in addition to just my usual, you know, pull a little bit of carbs out of the diet progressively uh, over the weeks. And so that's what I did. And it did seem to help. But I can tell you by evening time, because of the way I was doing it, I was wigging out, you know, because in the evening, you know, mm-hmm. hunger is so bad. It's so intense. And I ultimately said, listen, I got to put something in my mouth. I am not the kind of person who, because my whole life, it's just in the back of your mind. I think, Mike, you've said this before. It's just this nagging voice. It's time to eat. It's time. Yeah. You, you're going to waste <laughs> away, you know. And so I would eat. Uh, I would just make some uh, like egg beaters or egg whites or something. Because um, I felt like it's almost liquid. I won't eat anything else, you know. But it helped mm. me survive those evenings because fasting all day, damn, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I, again, Mike, I don't know when because you've done this with clients before. Mm-hmm. Is is evenings a rough spot for them, or not always? It, it depends. So I have clients kind of. My bias is if body comp is our goal, and this is not necessarily for people who are trying to get super shredded, although it may apply, it depends on the person, you know, work up to, you know, 19 to 24 hour fast, like once a week, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of my bias, you know, we're, mm-hmm. like you said, Nikki, we're still getting, you know, other six days of, you know, muscle protein synthesis is going to be higher, they're doing some weight training, they're getting sleep, all that kind of stuff, and I find just having a period of time where they're not eating for most people is easier but I do agree with you, Lonnie, especially if their overall calories are very low, then, you know, nighttime becomes a little bit trickier. But well, sometimes it's easier because that's also very social for them. So a lot of my clients are, are trainers and work with, you know, clients all day. They come back, they have a family. So this way they can do a long fast and go from dinner to dinner and still have dinner with their family when they get home. So what I do to try to keep an eye on it is I have them report how did their fast went, how hungry did they feel. I look at their HRV the next day and the day of, and then they have to report what is the meal that they had for dinner. So if anything, I usually have them have more veggies, you know, maybe double their protein. Right. Yep. At first, I just tell them to eat eat your normal meal, but you have to report back to me what you ate. And if you eat two of your normal meals and then like 18 cookies, okay. You probably went a little bit too hardcore on your fast, so let's let's kind of back that up right, a little bit. <laughs> right. In fact, um, just speaking with Chris Shugart back when he was, because he, I think he's got good ideas, right? And a, a lot of times, and when he's talking about be careful the next day, man, the more I've seen about 
at least extended hypochloric diets. Like every enzyme in your body is in storage mode when you start refeeding, you know? And so I was always so paranoid. I get it. Your body's trying to put back a little bit of everything because you're sort of in this starvation period. But I was just scared to death. So I would always be careful the day after. And again, I was trickling in just a little bit of leucine and protein every two hours, you know? But I would just be careful and not do what you said. Like, woohoo, you know, box of Oreos, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, because I just felt like I was going to undo uh, any progress I had made from all that suffering. Now, I, I know the concept of intermittent fasting is that you don't typically consume enough that you would actually match everything that you denied yourself, right? I think that's kind of the idea, that it's actually hard to gorge enough that if you spread it back over that last 24 hours, it still wouldn't equal what you would have consumed with regular meals. But again, I, you know, I, I haven't been reading what's most recent with this kind of stuff. But um, Nicole, you said you, you were looking at a paper recently. What was that one about? Yeah, so most of the studies and the systematic reviews have been on general obese populations, but I did find one um, about trained individuals. Um, Specifically, they were resistance-trained males, um, and the requirement was that they are regular resistance-trained for the last five years at least. So these were like pretty trained advanced athletes and it was an eight-week study investigating intermittent fasting versus just a normal diet so with intermittent fasting they were an eight-hour window I think they ate at 1 p.m. 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. versus the normal diet which was 8 a.m. 1 p.m. and 8 p.m. okay So they did match calories and macronutrients. Um, This one I specifically wanted to talk about today because it's this study is cited a lot because it showed a greater fat loss favoring intermittent fasting, Hmm. um, which people could use and say, oh, intermittent fasting is it's better for fat loss and preserving lean mass. But upon the further investigation into the actual data um there was actually a statistically insignificant 200 calorie difference between the intermittent fasting group versus the normal diet group which when you stretch that out over eight weeks um it's about 10 thousand calories which explained the difference in fat mass between the groups in the end Mm -hmm. so with this study they were trying to say it was better for fat mass but you know when you look further into it you can't say intermittent fasting is better here because they were eating less so Mm -hmm. i think that one's kind of interested in me because yeah you could cite that in another paper as it being better but the truth is they it was they had better results because they were eating less. Yeah, that's always right. That's always what comes up is, well, we already said it today. Like, wh- how much of this is just another way to get in a calorie deficit? You know, even mm-hmm. if it's minor uh, kind of thing. I do think the intermittent fasting thing is worth continued exploration. It's a different way. I think kind of what you said, Nikki, really struck me, which as a nutritionist, you don't have to educate people on counting macros, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You're just like, here's your window, eat here, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. there's not much. You really have to, you don't have to learn quite as much as far as the individual nutrients because you're just doing it with the time window. It just seems simple, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to get into that with some fellow dietitians. They would say, oh, well, you know, Lonnie, you got to realize we're working with a lot of people. They literally have a seventh grade reading comprehension or poorer and you can't they're not ready for a lot of this stuff and that felt a little elitist of them you know like oh we're gonna descend among the dirty masses and educate them you know kind of thing (laughs) but it it does make sense i mean simpler i mean occam's razor right simpler may just be better maybe a a better way um i wanted to ask you phil about when you used to diet Mm because 
how do you do it? Because you obviously there was a performance thing, like the little voice I have yeah. in the back of my head about you're losing muscle mass. You know, yours would yeah. be, bro, you're going to be weak. You know, so yeah. I mean, <laughs> so well, no, and the last time, and I stole this from you. The last time when I did that cut for, uh, it's been five years ago now almost. I cut down for my 40th birthday and uh, just to do it because it had always been a goal. I did uh, one or two days a week what you talked about, and I added in um, like a protein modified fast. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would just have my protein for the day um, on two days a week, which put me in at the end of the day, at the end of the week, in a deficit. Because <laughs> you know, basically, let's say I had 250 grams of protein that day times four calories. That's not a lot for me. Yeah. So Because I never <laughs> went below on an average day before I started that. Like to drop down to 242, or I made it to like 226. Uh, I never went below 3,500 calories. So, mm-hmm. um, on the average day. So I did. I did some of that, and uh, it seemed to help. You know, then I was never starving. You know, I'd have yes. chicken breast or egg whites, like you said, or just a protein shake, something that had pretty much nothing but fat or nothing but protein in it. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. And yeah, I think it boils down to. Is it helpful? I think so, like most diets for some people. Uh, compliance. You know, if, if the person will do that consistently, it's a good diet for them. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's straightforward. And if it's not, then it sucks. You know, if, if somebody's just like Mike was talking about, if somebody just hates it, well, I'm not going to make you do it. There's other things we can do. So Right. No, that's a good point. Yeah. If your readiness to accept these, these conditions – if you're pissed at me from the beginning, yeah, let's not try that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like my wife, she doesn't mind not eating. She'll go to sleep and not eat till one. So, yeah, it's probably a good strategy for her. Mm-hmm. She naturally does that anyways. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, for me, like, man, if I had to train heavy, like, like if I was had to, like, if it was set in my diet, like I'm working with Mike and he's like, Phil, you can't eat till four in the afternoon. But Mike, I got to go squat <laughs> seven or pounds at 10. Well, you still don't get to eat. Well, fine. This is my thought. <laughs> you know? Right. You don't get to eat because. So I, I, I always tend to base my eating around my training. And it's more before my training than it is after. Yep. So because uh, I want to go into a training session fueled up and ready to go. Um, I can starve after. I'll live. Mm-hmm. You know, but if I can get that good training session in, and I, I lean that way towards with most of my athletes. Uh, let's be honest. Most of the people I work with are competing in something. So uh, we generally fuel their training sessions, and then they can suffer after. Yeah, you know, I did that. Yeah, when I used to like in the last month of like a four month, you know, sort of cutting phase, there's no carbs left practically, and I I would two times a day. I'm I'm gonna even if it's fifty grams, damn it, I'm gonna have a little bit of oatmeal for breakfast and something before or after I lift, like right around the the workout area. Those are the two times. Otherwise, my performance is gonna suck. I'm going to lift like a wimp, and I'm going to lose muscle mass because the training stimulus is suffering. Exactly, and that's what I never understood. Like everybody, for a long time there, and we worked for a place that really pushed this, the importance of the post-workout training window. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, that's great and all, but if I go in and have a shit-ass workout, what's the point in my (laughs) – because I'm not fed? Yep. That just sucks. Yeah. You know? It's the the pre-training is much more important to me, especially athlete-wise. Uh, you know, we need to go in and have a good session. That's what their life revolves around uh, right now is the importance of their training as a strength or sport athlete. So we do what it takes to make that good and then adjust the rest of the diet towards their, you know, aesthetics or, you know, their body composition. Right. Yep. So, uh, we do the same thing. I mean, it all depends on your constraints, too. Like you guys said, if you're if you get to the point where you have such a low amount of carbohydrates, then where you strategically place them is probably going to make a much bigger difference. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're off season and some people I've worked with are at 500 grams of carbohydrates a day, it's like, who cares? You're constantly having enough. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, but if you're down near even a hundred, which is, mm-hmm. I'd say is low and people are going to go below that. Obviously, if you're trying to get really lean or you've got to do something crazy, I just find that, you know, I'll put them beforehand, maybe the night before, whatever will generate the biggest bump in performance and then lower drop in their HRV the next day. Mm-hmm. So I've had him even use, you know, 50 grams of carbohydrates during the session. 
Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I understand the literature for resistance training is super mixed on that. However, I can consistently see the next day that their HRV is not nearly as bad, mm-hmm. right? I think some of those carbohydrates are buffering some of that stress response yeah. or who knows what's going on, but it seems to be pretty repeatable. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, where, as we wind down, Nicole, let me ask you one thing. Uh, what about as far as, like you mentioned female athlete triad before, what's your mm-hmm. personal, just asking for your opinion here, really, professional opinion, as far as people that are trying to rebuild after they've dealt with that, do you think intermittent fasting, is, is this a good thing or maybe not? Because on one side, I can see that you're not obsessively counting stuff and worried about stuff. You're just eating in a certain time window. You know, you're just eating. But on the other mm-hmm. side, you know, it does call for a certain amount of discipline. What are your personal thoughts about that? Like someone who's trying to rebuild or they've experienced some level of female athlete triad or eating disorder in the past. What's your thoughts on intermittent fasting for them? Yeah. When I was first thinking about it, I was like, probably not for them, but I do like the point that you brought up that, yeah, then you don't have to worry so much about counting calories and macronutrients. And it's just kind of, um, a time where you can eat ad libitum, but I don't know. For me personally, um, I have problems eating a lot in one sitting. So for me, if I, I have problems getting it in through the whole day, like 15 hours. So, um, I probably wouldn't do it for myself. But yeah, maybe for other, it's just high, so highly individual, really. Um, what works best for which each athlete? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the like when we talk about counting and everything, diet records and that sort of thing. Like the one group I'm very wary doing that with, of course, is someone who, if they've had, especially like something related to anorexia or something. Boy, you just logging is usually a good idea, but there are yeah. sometimes when. It's not such a good idea, you know. There's got to be a looser, less obsessive, quantitative way to keep track of things or, or uh, you know, keep it simple. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining us. We're just about out of time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to get some Yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks. All right, everybody. We will catch up with you again uh, next week. Sweet. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.